0: Welcome, everybody, to True Crime on Easy Street. It is our 100th episode.
1: (laughs) That's it? That is our celebratory horn.
0: Party! Uh, And And we are getting ready to crack open a few beverages. There we go. That was a little delayed there, Scott. What was taking you so Uh, long? I'm sorry.
1: I'm not used to drinking beer. (laughs)
0: We're going to have a few beverages. We made it 100 episodes.
1: It's a miracle we did because you know when we started this, we were going to drink on the, during every episode, we every recording. And I'm the only person who's stuck with that so far until today. And I'm 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 dry. I'm dried Scott, out today.
0: You are, you have zero percent alcohol in your body, right?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that, but I haven't right. had any
0: in 12 hours. <laughs> Well, we're excited to be here for 100 episodes. We want to thank all of our listeners, and I want to thank you guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Same. Yes, love it. Sitting here with us every week. I know.
1: Sunday is my favorite day of the week.
0: I look forward to recording day every
1: week. I do too. I love it. I always do. And I'm so glad I'm going to let you tell everybody what it is exactly that we're going to do today, but I'm so glad that we're doing what we're doing. I'm glad you picked that because, I mean, we've been doing this for Coming up on two years. April will be two years. Yes. So we're almost at the two-year anniversary on our 100th episode. The sound is better now. We do our research better. We know each other better. The, yeah. the chemistry is better. We we're, we're really are a team of experts now.
0: Quote. He air-quoted that. Yeah, quoted I was that. doing
1: some air quotes there. So when we talk about our cases now, it's so much better. I feel like you guys remember from the uh, the third Indiana Jones movie with Sean Connery, The Last Crusade. Yeah. When they get into the plane under the uh, Zeppelin. And his dad says, do you know how to fly this plane? He says, fly, yes. Land, no. (laughs) So when we started, we knew how to fly and we didn't know how to land. But now we know how to land these things.
0: We do. And we do it every week. I know. And
2: I'm Kelly Turner and I'm not a doctor.
1: My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist.
2: I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. And is this a good time to tell you I've never seen any of the Indiana Jones movies?
1: No, it is not. Oh, Oh, what? Oh, boy. Don't tell my daughter that. I will pretend Um, to be surprised if you like.
0: I know. My daughter is a huge fan of not only just Indiana Jones, Star Wars. She loves Harrison Ford. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I said to her, I said, Katie, you know, he's like 80, right? He's exactly 80. And she goes, so? so i was like you know what good point yeah Yeah, it just gets better every day and
1: one of the things that you told us to do for this episode for this special edition that's probably going to run long today but i'm excited about that yeah you told us to pick out some of our favorite episodes from Mm -hmm. the last 99 yes so who's going to go first um kelly it's your show you go first
0: okay Well, it's every. I know, but
1: this show was your baby. This was your idea. You reached out to both of us to do this.
0: Yeah. And you said no first, remember? I know, and
1: I don't know why. It sounded (laughs) like a lot of work. And it has been a lot of work, but fun work.
0: We could have a whole, a whole nother year of Yeah, but we might be
1: tired of doing it by now if that were the case.
0: Because you said no first. And so then a year later, I asked. Was it
1: a year? One whole year. (sighs) I apologize because I have had a blast doing this. I'm, I'm sorry that I deprived us of this fun on Sundays. I know. For that amount of time, because it's been terrific. Hope we keep doing it forever. Me too. Which is impossible, but <laughs> fingers crossed.
0: All right. So I have my top five cases that we have covered here. All right. True, true Crime on Easy Street. All right. Number five, The Zodiac. That was fun. That was season two, episodes 10 through 12, featuring Henry Johnson.
3: Mm, Henry did a great job. voice
0: actor. Yeah. For Zodiac, he was incredibly creepy about it. Yes, he was. And that was what he was supposed to be. We loved it. Yep. Fantastic job, Henry. He's got some
1: acting experience.
0: Yeah, and fantastic job, Scott.
1: Oh, thanks. On it was point. a lot of fun.
0: It was. All right. Number four, Barbara Ann Roberts.
1: Mm-hmm. That season one's on my list as well.
0: Season one, episodes 25 and 26, entitled Bad Case of Loving You. We had Bo Jolly and his daughter, Caitlin Jolly Gossett. Mm-hmm. Now. I think was she still jolly at the
3: time when she's uh,
0: jolly.
1: uh, She was jolly before, and she's jolly since. But throw the gossip in there too. I don't remember. I don't remember. I think think she got married after that.
0: Yeah, I think so. But they did an incredible job. What a very thorough investigation there, and and Bo had some unique
1: insight into that case.
0: Absolutely, I loved it. All right, number three, Willie Maxwell, Mm -hmm. season one, episodes. 12 through 14, that's the reverend. That was the whole...
1: Another Alabama case. That was our focus initially. We've mm-hmm. branched out since, but another Alabama case that we focused on.
0: Yep, yep. That that was a... F- I hate to say fun, because it, it's, it was really some terrible crimes. Yeah. But we were able to tie in Harper Lee and a ghost story with that. And most of you don't know the ghost story, because uh, we only did that when we were hired... To do a private event,
1: oh yeah, that's right. Remember that, uh-huh. oh, I, we I'm, talked I'm, about. Yeah. The I'm not sure if "hired" is the right word. I'm not. Did, well, did you guys get paid? Because I didn't.
0: Oh,
3: oops.
1: what? Oh, yeah, We'll discuss that later.
0: <laughs> we got paid. Uh, we were fed lunch. I
1: think that's true. And we got yeah. some applause. We did get some. To, oh yes, to feed so our egos. A
0: lovely group of ladies. Yeah, had a great time. All right, uh, number two, Audrey Marie Hilly. Season one, episode three, mm-hmm. Love You Like a Black Widow. Yeah, the Black AD. Widow was a good one. Yeah. What a, what a convoluted story. Yes. The whole, she's going up north, and she's pretending to be your twin sister, and she's, uh, wow.
1: Go back and listen to that one if you haven't.
0: Exactly. That's a good. One. And my all-time favorite case that we've done, Scott, you were mm-hmm. in the big chair for what? this one. Albert Patterson. Season one. Really? Episode eight. Oh, I'm glad that you like that one. It's called Way Down Yonder on the Chattahoochee. I don't, I think it's still not on iTunes. So.
1: I so think I saw it the other, you, uh, no, it may not be on iTunes. It's on Spotify. That's why yeah. I changed the link on our uh Website homepage yeah. to take you to Spotify instead of iTunes because there are two episodes and I forget what they are. Katie may remember. Yeah, but that one and one other are missing from iTunes. So well, if yeah, you want to hear that, go to Spotify.
2: One of them. Yeah. The uh uh, yeah. uh, uh the
1: guy the the unit the uh Unibobber? Olympic the Olympic Park Bomber. Oh, yeah.
2: Olympic Park.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so, if you want to listen to this one, but you've been using um Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm go to Spotify, go to our website and look for Way Down Yonder on the Chattahoochee, Season 1, Episode 8, and it talks about Phoenix City and the Albert Patterson story, and that story, I was enthralled. Scott, you did an incredible job on it.
1: Well, thanks. It was a a unique case because back then, in that part of Alabama, it was basically the mob was running the town, Mm -hmm. and they killed the Attorney General of the the attorney general elect of the state of Alabama,
0: who was the, trying to clean it up, who
1: was trying to clean up the town.
0: Yeah, it, it, what a great, a great, and, and always will admire Albert Patterson. And, he stood and I up. didn't know. Yeah, this is you know we've talked about this. We didn't learn things like this in history class because it, it's it's not been so long. We since talked about happened. that when we did yes. the Patricia Hearst
1: case. Yes. Yeah. in that window of time that we never got to in high school, and if you didn't focus on that in college, you may not have learned it.
0: That's right. So. Those are
2: my top five. All right, Katie, what you got? My top five, I was trying to, I didn't have two episode numbers on it. That's what I've been trying to count uh, back. She's been season,
1: scrambling over there. I wonder what she was doing.
2: Season one, I didn't put the episode numbers, you know, beside it. Oh, so yeah. I had to go and mm-hmm. count through because my top five, one of them is Throw It Back, which was season one, episode 23. Oh, Scott mm-hmm. was in the big chair for that
1: mm-hmm. one. That, that was a local case right was- here in Cherokee County.
2: It was, and we did that one live next door at Easy Street, too, and we had several people. That was probably our best crowd. It
0: was. That's where we met the owners of the dog who actually found, was it a leg?
1: A leg or a foot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And had a had a uh, Instagram photo op and everything with them. I wanted that's to right. meet the dog. I mean, I love meeting the people, too. Right. Don't but get me wrong, but. You're a dog lover. We dog. all are dog lovers
2: yeah. here. Dog lover, yeah. And then my second one is Corpsewood Manor, which is season one, episode twenty-nine.
3: That was creepy I believe. AF.
2: That was a good one. Mm-hmm. They have some fantastic Facebook
0: groups for Corpsewood. Really? Manor. Yeah.
1: Okay, I've lost track of that case since we did it, but I, mm-hmm. I'll go back and do some digging.
2: That was yours too, wasn't it? Yep.
1: Yeah, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah
2: my next one which was a two-parter was I Got the six.
1: Oh yes
2: season two episodes one the, and two
1: the Beatrice thing was mm-hmm. that Beatrice Kansas six.
2: yes yeah. Beatrice Nebraska those were really good episodes uh, another one was Blake Stone
3: mm-hmm. season two
2: episode mm-hmm. 17 because that's a that's a pretty local case happened in a town I, I really enjoyed I really enjoy when we get a, close enough to home but, but not, not all up in our house right? mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not in the front yard, no, no, no,
2: and then my number one was the whites season two episode twenty two the whites of Alabama, because we got to that one pretty early mm-hmm. right after it happened
1: we yeah, it was fortunate, I mean, not it wasn't fortunate for anyone, but the way our recording schedule fell, that had just happened, and it we had like five days to jump on it. and
0: has anything
2: happened with that case so far? No, I don't it,
0: think not, not really, okay, Still and waiting. we knew
2: the um. The U.S. Marshal who, yeah, actually made the arrest. That's right. Just Mm -hmm. it was like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon. How we knew the
0: Mm -hmm. marshal.
3: Yeah. Yes. I was
1: gonna. I thought you were saying six Six degrees degrees of Kevin Turner, your husband. No,
0: it was like six (laughs) six degrees of Hubie Latham.
3: (laughs) Yes, that's That's what it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those are great cases, and they were all different from mine. How about that? We didn't even talk
2: about this beforehand.
0: Was yeah. No, no,
1: no, no rehearsal. We didn't swap notes at all before this. We did not. Okay, so I cheated a little bit. Okay. So I have two categories. I have a category of standalone episodes, okay. and a category of multi-part episodes. I gotcha. So in no particular order, my favorite stand up, uh standalone episodes. First of all, when Katie did Israel Keys, and that's only been Israel like two Keys. weeks ago. Yeah, that was fantastic. Oh, well,
3: thanks. You thanks. not was a you good don't
1: one. you don't you do a lot of other things, and you've got a lot of stuff going on otherwise. So you don't get in the big chair as often as Kelly and I. But when you climbed in the big chair, you kicked your shoes off and made yourself at home.
0: Yeah, you did. It was
1: that was nice a great job. one.
2: Great job. I'm always barefoot over here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true. I wasn't going to mention. Uh, Kelly, when you did the Watch Your House, oh, one of my yeah. favorite. I oh, love oh, that nice. creepy with the letters. And that yeah, was just, it was a letters. different vibe okay. in the room that day. So I thought that was terrific. And my favorite standalone episode that I had anything to do with, I really love the D.B. Cooper thing. I was really oh, glad yeah, yeah. that I got Cooper. to do that. That's been something that's bounced around in my head for years. And for you to say, yeah, let's do that. And to get to do it, that was fun for me.
0: And to get a compliment from folks who make this case their life.
1: Oh, yeah. They, they I forgot were, about that. They
0: they approved
1: of Very the job complimentary. That did.
0: Yeah. So, got was awesome. And right
1: up front, we said, you know, it's just, it's a, it's DB Cooper 101. We're not yes. going to try to solve the thing, but here are the basic facts. And they thought, yeah, they did a good job of laying out the basic facts. Go dig more if you like.
0: Yep. Absolutely.
1: So, the multi-part episodes, uh, I'd have to say my favorite is just the merch. The Murdoch thing, oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, you you were in the big chair for most of those. I think Katie and I took one apiece, and you took two, if I remember correctly, and then. It, it just it was the right time. It, all the stuff had just come out, the information about the housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield and mm-hmm. Stephen Smith, mm-hmm. the the young boy who'd been found in the road years before. Yes. And then Maggie and Paul had been killed right before we did that.
0: And Mallory Beach.
1: Or no, they hadn't had they been killed yet? Yeah, that was yeah, the previous June. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yeah, and then the thing with the with the boating accidents. So that's my favorite multi part episode that we've done. We'll have and to do a
2: part five coming
0: up. We'll out. have we to are. at some point,
1: yeah.
2: I know a lot of our
0: listeners have been watching that trial. Yeah.
1: And then a little bit of crossover between Kelly and me. I, I chose the Barbara and Roberts case as well because we had the local angle and Bo and Caitlin were here yeah, for the first part. One. And that was just, that was something unique that we had a chance to do that a lot of other podcasts don't. Right. Because we have the connection here to the local sheriff's office. Oh, okay. So that was fun. And then I think my favorite one that that, that I was in the big chair for, I just love the Patty Hearst thing. I thought there was a lot of cool stuff that I, I kind of felt like I finally figured out how to to do my research in a way that I could Put it into a coherent story and get from the start to the finish. Oh
0: yeah, you did a great yes, job. Yes, you did. And do a, great well,
1: job. I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but I will take it. But I, I finally <laughs> well, yeah, felt like I what? got the hang of it. You
0: earned it with that one. Oh, I, I remember leaving those cases just mad. So I knew you asked me. You're like, are you mad at the end of it? And I, and I said no, but I took off you my were. headphones and literally walked out of the room. <laughs> I mean, when that story ended, spoiler alert, ended with a total pardon from President Clinton. I yeah. was just like, you know what, I'm out. Peace out.
1: I was pissed too. That is ridiculous. For what it's worth.
0: Anyways, that's okay. But you did an incredible job on that. Everybody, this was fun. Yes. And we actually have enough episodes now Mm -hmm.
1: to do this. All right. All right. Play us out. That's it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought, though, two years ago, we'd be sitting here 100 episodes in? I know.
1: And And I saw something on Twitter a few months ago. You know, I keep up with our Twitter page and and share our weekly uh, links to the news story. And I follow a lot of true crime related uh, uh, Twitter accounts. And one of them that I read a few weeks ago that I meant to share with you guys and I forgot. It said, there are fewer than 5% of podcasts who get past 50 episodes. And we had already started to talk about zeroing in on our 100th. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, I need to tell the girls about that. So I just did. So Yay. we've gotten to a hundred. So we're in a very uh rare company when it comes to podcasts. I'm proud to get of us this far. Yeah, me too. Let's, let's
0: uh, hey, let's open another beer. How about how about we how about we do that? You ready, Scott? Sure. Crack it open. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> heading for the mountains.
0: That's right. Um, okay, so we have a uh, drum roll. Can you do the drum roll? Nope. I
1: cannot even get close. That's that's as good as
0: that's, yeah. The, yeah, the rim shot is not
1: what we're looking for. Yeah. The, 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 the Griswold. The, the lighting uh, of the house and yeah. the Christmas vacation. You could do
0: it like the grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> <Now> he was mad. <laughs> Out there. All right. Our gift to you and our gift to ourselves mm-hmm. for the 100th episode, ladies and gentlemen, we are revisiting the Judith Ann Neely crimes.
1: Yeah, we're going to we're going to redo that episode mm-hmm. with a little bit more information. We have a lot more. A lot more information, a lot better sound.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: And a lot more coherent effort and a lot more of a determined everybody pulling on the same end of the rope attitude. We were still fishing around trying to figure out what we were doing on that first one. Correct. But now we know how mm-hmm. now we know how we work best together, so mm-hmm. we're going to do that today,
3: right?
0: So let's revisit Judith and Neely and her crimes. plural
3: Plural. Plural. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: All right. This is Alabama. Yes. Alabama case.
1: And, our, and we chose it as our very first one because it happened right here in the area. And we, yes. And again, we were trying to figure out how this show is going to, what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Let's start right here at home and see where it takes us from there. Let's do it. Okay. So the source material that I used for this was a book called Early Graves, the shocking true story of the youngest woman ever sentenced to death row. That book was written by Thomas Cook, a Fort Payne native and that'll be pertinent in a moment, in 1990. Uh, he dedicated the book in part to the family of the Rome Police Department detective who had helped to track down the killer of our victims, Lisa Ann Milliken and Janice K. Chapman. Is Thomas Cook related to Jeff Cook? I don't know, but that's a good question. Probably. Because Jeff Cook, the uh, one of the guitarists for the country music supergroup Alabama, Mm-hmm. They are all from Fort Payne.
0: Probably really So it could be. Which is about 20 minutes from here.
1: Yep. And they're about to do June Jam 2023. We need to reach out to those guys and see if they want to sponsor the show. <laughs> so I went back through that book again uh, this past week, and I, I got my notes from that very first episode and, and uh, freshened them up a bit. I found some new things that I skipped over for whatever reason the first time that seem a lot, that seem pretty interesting to me now. So we're going to smatter this with those as we go.
0: I like that word, smatter.
1: I'll try not to use it again. I won't won't overuse it. I like it. Okay, well, here comes a smattering of information then. (laughs) And now I've overdone it. Uh, The book mentions a lot of names that people of a certain age here in Cherokee County will sound sound familiar to you, all right? Uh, District Attorney Mike O'Dell was involved in the case back at the time. He was an assistant DA then. He since became the elected DA of the 9th District and just recently retired. He retired in January.
0: And he was on our show.
1: And he has been on our show. And he's going to be mad that we didn't pick that as one of our favorites <laughs> if he's still listening. Sorry, Mike.
0: The only
2: episode that I missed. I know. That's why.
1: I oh, went, yeah. I have,
2: you know, I could choose an episode Kelly wasn't on. That's
1: that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Another name is uh, Danny Smith. He's a local here from Cherokee mm-hmm. County. He was a DA investigator at the time. Uh, he's since retired. He's involved in the rescue squad and the ambulance service here. He's still involved in the community. But he was one of the lead investigators of this case at the time, and then of course Judge Randall Cole, the longtime district judge mm-hmm. here in District Nine, uh, and that includes Cherokee and DeKalb counties. He has since retired, but he was a, for a long time, decades was he has been honored for his decades of service. Yes, uh, prior to his retirement. So the author of Early Graves tells the story of the death of 13-year-old Lisa Ann Milliken, in particular, from the perspective of the two people who caused her death. But before we talk about who kidnapped and killed her, let's talk about Lisa Ann Milligan. Lisa Ann was 13 years old, bless her heart, but she was the kind of girl that trouble seemed to find a little bit too easily. Uh, She had already lived a hard life, suffering sexual abuse from multiple men over the course of her 13 years on the planet. She was in the foster care system in the state of Georgia. Mm Mm-hmm. She was from Lafayette, a town in Georgia. She was born in June of 1969 and entered the foster care system at the age of 11 after she had been sexually assaulted by her father. That took place in December of 1980 when she was 11 years old. So a hard life, indeed. Several different foster homes. She was sort of a loner even when she was there. She had run away from two previous foster homes and had been asked to leave two others because she was trouble. She got into fights with the other girls. They fought over boys. She didn't really get along with the other girls her age. uh, and she was forced to stay there because her home life was so terrible. Yeah. So Lisa Ann was in this particular home in Cedartown, Georgia, about twenty minutes from Rome. It was called the Ethel Harpst home. And that's about uh Cedartown is twenty minutes from twenty miles from Rome. And Rome is about thirty minutes from where we sit right now in center Alabama. So it's across the state line, but in nearby Reasonably sized municipality.
2: Yes. 45, 50
0: minutes yeah. from here. If
1: you want to go to a Sam's Club, <laughs> you have to go to Rome, Georgia. That's yeah. the closest People one.
0: from our area visit Rome, Georgia quite often to go out to dinner or Certainly. do a little, uh, like you said, Sam's Club shopping. Yep. Or and a lot, of a, from that,
1: yeah, a lot of people from that area come here to Cherokee County to visit their weekend homes on beautiful Weiss Lake. They do? Yeah. So, a lot of crossover between here and Rome, Georgia. It's a common trip that people around here make. Mm-hmm. So, the Harp's Home, like I said, was a facility for neglected teenagers. On the day our story begins, Saturday, September the 25th, 1982, Lisa Ann and five other girls were driven in a van from the Harp's Home over to Rome so they could window shop at the mall. The girls didn't have any money, not much anyway, maybe a couple of bucks for video games at Aladdin's Castle but mostly they were just there to window shop. And the trip, apparently, to have it told later, had been Lisa Ann's idea. She begged and begged to get to go to the mall to load up the girls and let's all spend the afternoon at the mall walking around and window shopping. Uh, And Thomas Cook, the author of the book, would later uh, speculate that it may have been her idea to go to the mall because she wanted to escape again. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, everything that we know, about how her kidnappers operated when they were out picking up young girls to take back so the husband could have sex with them, Lisa and probably willingly went, and I'll explain that in a minute. So here we are at Riverbend Mall on a Saturday in Rome, Georgia. After the van ride, Lisa and the five other girls are told to stay together while they're in the mall, unsupervised, and then to meet back an hour later in front of the Radio Shack, which was in Riverbend Mall.
2: These are all very dated terms. Yeah. Kids hanging out at a mall alone. Mm-hmm. Radio Shack.
1: Radio Shack. Like mm-hmm. it's really Aladdin's baby. castle. Yeah, Aladdin's castle. In fact, Riverbend Mall is no longer even there. Nope. It's been gone for probably twenty years now. It's been a long time.
0: It's a nice outdoor type shopping area. Yeah.
1: If you're that's over in East Rome now, it's where the Outback Steakhouse is. And it's that shopping center that has TJ Maxx and Barnes and Noble. Yes. That's where Riverbend
3: Mall and used to be. And is, everything
0: is on the outside. So you, you enter each store right in, through their front door instead of just going into the mall and all the stores being there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of malls that are doing that now. Yeah, They're that's true. Of, yes. Going inside out.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I remember when I was a kid, when Lisa Ann Milliken disappeared in 82, she was 13. I was 12 and 82. And I remember mom dropping my little brother and me off at Riverbend Mall. I mean, she wouldn't drop us off. She would go into shops. She would drop us off at Aladdin's castle, Oh yeah, give us a $5 bill and yep. tell us to share the tokens. You get 10 a piece. And when it's done, when you're out, when you've finished playing all the Donkey Kong and Frogger, you can <laughs> come and find me and then we'll leave.
0: Yeah. For me, it would be. Meet me in ball. a food
1: court. Ski yeah. ball. Ski ball, whatever. Oh, I'm a fan of ski ball. Um, so after an hour, all the girls meet back in front of Radio Shack. The other five girls show up. Lisa Ann isn't there.
0: Mm.
1: Remember, she was a loner. That's right. So the lady who drove the van from the Harps home calls mall security. They do a sweep of the area. They can't find her. They do another sweep. Still can't find her. Then they call their own police department and they search the whole building. They can't find her. Now, nobody had hit the panic button just yet because Lisa Ann has escaped or she's run away before. So the first thing they do is they call the Harp's home. Maybe she got a ride with someone, and they dropped her off back at the Harp's home in Cedartown, where she's been staying. But no, she did not return to the Harp's home. So now, Lisa Ann is considered a missing person. She is a 13 year old white female dressed in blue jeans and a white checkered blouse. She's five foot five with brown hair cut in a shag. Shag cut.
0: There's another dated term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of coming back around a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's just like a lot of layers does. everywhere, yeah. right? Just mm-hmm. layers
1: everywhere. So it's starting to seem like someone had taken Lisa Ann Milliken from the shopping mall, but surely, surely it would take a low life piece of shit and her husband to do something that terrible. Speaking of Alvin and Judith Ann Neely, they were the people who took Lisa Ann Milliken from the mall, it would turn out. And... They had spent that day in Rome, Georgia, driving around in separate cars as they did, mm-hmm. working as a team to pick up young girls. They started out driving through the poorer parts of town, looking for girls walking by themselves on the sidewalk.
0: Yeah. And they, we talked about this, <clears throat> I remember, back in episode one, mm-hmm. the very first episode. They would drive around and they had um, CB radios Correct. in their cars. Yep. And that's how they would communicate with each other.
1: Yeah, and it, I guess they thought that it was less menacing if, a, if, a, mm-hmm. if an 18-year-old girl wanted to give a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old girl a ride. There's not a big, huge, hulking man in the car as well.
0: Right, because we forget Judith Ann Neely is 18 years old at this time. She's right. young. How, how old is Alvin? Uh,
1: at the time, he would have been 29.
2: So he's a good bit older.
0: Yeah,
1: they were I mean, several years older when they met, when she was 15. Yeah,
2: but absolutely, it's perfect plot. I, you know, you're a wayward girl who's just looking, you know, looking around. That's the best possible outcome you could have. Oh, there's a, there's a girl not that much older than me offering me a ride. Sweet.
3: That's yeah, safe.
1: That's as safe as it Yeah, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. seems safe. Mm-hmm. So like Kelly said, they communicated with each other using CB radios. Uh, Alvin drove a red 75 Ford Granada and Judith Ann drove a Dodge Charger that was brown. Alvin Howard Neely Jr. was 29 when they met. He was a Tryon, Georgia native and a former car thief. Very recently, in fact, he had only gotten out of jail for uh, stealing a car in March of '82.
3: Here are two things Alvin was not: small and smart. He was neither of those two things. Oh, he no. He
1: weighed about 250 pounds, and he was as dumb as a bag of hammers. Wow, that's I'm paraphrasing, but. You'll see what I mean. I mean, in
0: the
1: South, that's when he's say, well, bless his heart. Judith Ann Neely, maiden name Adams, was 18 years old. She was a Tennessee native. Stick a pin in that. And by all accounts, was a very intelligent person. She'd been a good student in school in her teenage years. And during later psychological examinations, all ordered by a judge, she was found to be of superior intelligence. Yes. So, we know who wears the pants in that family.
0: Well, the brains, for sure.
1: Yeah. Judy's dad had died in a motorcycle crash in March of 1974 when she was nine years old. And suddenly, the family's middle-class existence changed dramatically. She dropped down to, to what Thomas Cook called white trash. Mm. Her siblings dropped out of school. Her mother spent all of her time in the bedroom on the CB radio trying to entice truckers to stop by and spend the night. Okay. She was successful plenty of times, according to Judy later. Wow. Young Judy was also a mother because after eloping and getting married in July of 1980, when she was freshly turned 16, she and Alvin had had twins later that year in December of 1980. Oh. Jeremy and April were their names. Uh, they had been delivered two days after Judy had been arrested for stealing a woman's purse at gunpoint in the parking lot at... Riverbend Mall in Rome, Georgia.
0: Oh, she was like nine full months pregnant,
1: big pregnant, almost
0: 40 weeks along, and waving a gun, holding people up. Give me your purse. Wow, okay. All
2: right, Judy.
1: She served her time for that in Georgia's Youth Development Center.
0: So she gave birth there. They had to
1: two days later. Oh, two days later. Yeah, I mean, she had just been hauled in, and two days later, she gives birth. Oh, crap. And that was the the Youth Development Center, the YDC in Georgia, that was their juvenile detention mm-hmm. uh, system. Mm-hmm. They Do you know
0: it. what happened to the, the children?
1: They spent some time with her, his parents, his parents while they were, his were incarcerated. Family. And then they had them, they got them back after they both got out of jail for their prospective terms. Her for armed robbery and him for car theft. Okay. They end up with the kids again. But remember that Judy served time in the Georgia Youth Development Center. Mm-hmm. Some of it in Rome and then she got transferred to Macon to serve the rest of her sentence, Macon, Georgia. Okay. But now we're back to September the 25th of 1982. Alvin has just completed his 2-year sentence for car theft. He'd only been a free man for 5 months. Judy had been released from juvenile detention the previous November, but after she got out, she robbed an Exxon station and went back to jail for a few months. So she's only been out for a couple of months as well when this happens. They're already married. They've eloped two years earlier, like I said. And when they got out, they moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, which is just north of the Georgia border, uh, border to live with Alvin's parents.
0: Okay, and so that's where the children are. Too. Yeah,
1: that was in late April of 82 when they were uh, back together again, okay. Judith mm-hmm. and Alvin. For whatever reason, in September, they're back in Rome. I guess if you want to rob somebody, you, you go where the people are. Sure. Rome at the time was about 35,000, 40,000 people. Mm-hmm.
0: And a mall. I mean,
1: and a mall. And they, she'd been there before. She knew the lay of the land. She knew.
0: People kind of have their guard down yeah. when they're at the mall. I don't you feel know safe. why, but they do, yeah.
1: So, as law enforcement would find out later, Judy and Alvin had been driving around Rome for several days before Lisa Ann was taken, trying to convince random young girls to hop in the car with Judy and go for a ride. Ugh. But they hadn't had any luck with Judy pulling her car up to the girls on the sidewalks in the poorer parts of town, so they decided to return to the scene of their previous crime, Riverbend Mall. Several girls who had had the benefit of a decent upbringing, including nuggets of wisdom like don't talk to strangers, had quickly shuffled away from Judy earlier that afternoon in the mall. And like we said earlier, Judy always worked alone. She's less menacing that way. Mm. Alvin is inside Aladdin's castle. Thomas Cook says playing Frogger. Okay. That was his favorite game.
0: And I mean, he's not. Is Alvin of the mindset where, you know, is he just dumb or, or he's just
1: dumb? I think he's just dumb. I he mean, doesn't he's, have he's, any... he's criminally inclined because he's stolen cars. Okay. But he's a lot more cautious about getting caught. Hey, Love, let's don't yeah. do that. That's a bad idea. You're going to get us caught. Let's don't do that. Yeah. So he's not a complete idiot. He he just maybe he doesn't have the, I don't want to say he doesn't have the daring. I want to say he's got uh, less of the sociopathic tendencies of his other half. Okay. At least he's got a bit of common sense. No, honey, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to go to jail again. Okay. And where Judy's just like, I don't care. Let's do it. We'll get away with it. Right. Don't they always think they're going to get away?
0: Yeah. We've talked about that quite a bit. Mm
1: -hmm. So when Judy walked into Riverbend Mall, sometime during the single hour that Lisa Ann Milliken was on her own on September the 25th, 1982, Judy was wearing a white t-shirt with a Confederate battle flag on the front and scruffy worn blue jeans. She was wearing no makeup. She probably didn't own any living out of the trunk of a car like she and Alvin did for weeks at a time. Her hair was not brushed. She didn't appear to be taking very good care of herself, a witness would say. These details would come to be common denominators in a lot of descriptions of Judy Neely through the years. And according to Thomas's, uh, Thomas Cook's research, Neely that day looked, quote, dirty, as if she hadn't had a bath in a long time. She was wearing no bra. That is the recollection of a girl named Suzanne Klontz, C L O N T S. Just it's hard to say and for you to hear what I'm saying, so that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Klontz was a woman who gave that description to police investigators. She was a girl who had come out of Aladdin's Castle and had been approached by Judy and said, "Hey, do you want to go riding around? I'm here in town by myself." Suzanne said, "No, my husband's inside." So Judy left her alone.
3: Ah, okay. So this
1: tangle-haired, unkempt, brawless woman told Suzanne Klantz she was at the mall. Suzanne says no. Later, Suzanne told her husband as they were driving away from the mall after this uh, run-in that she got the impression from Neely that she, quote, didn't look like an ordinary, healthy human being.
0: So there were just some red flags.
1: <laughs> Waving everywhere.
0: Su- is Suzanne, you said? Suzanne, Suzanne. Klantz.
1: yeah. Now we will never know for sure exactly what Neely did to safely or, or to get Lisa Ann in the car, but I think it's safe to assume that it was some similar approach. That was her standard approach. We'll hear from several witnesses later that all say she just said, "Hey, I'm lonely. I'm new in town. You want to go for a ride?"
0: And then you also have Lisa, who is trying to get away, or possibly, possibly trying possibly to get away. She certainly
1: wanna... has done it before. Yeah. So, however, Lisa gets into the car with Judy, that happens. After which she drove to Franklin, Georgia with Lisa Ann sitting beside her and Alvin following closely behind in his car. They're talking on the CB radio and they go to the Chattahoochee Motel in Franklin, Georgia and spend the night in room number three. Now, it's not just the three of them because the Neelys have their twins in the car with them and they're in the motel room for the entire night.
3: Where were the twins when they were in the mall?
1: Unattended in the car or with Alvin. Probably unattended in the car. Wow. With the window cracked.
3: Good gracious.
1: At one point that night, the desk attendant at the motel saw Alvin shirtless near the front of the door to the office with his huge stomach hanging over his belt, cramming coins into the vending machines lined up out front. At another point, Judy and Lisa Ann came over together, walked into the office, asked about local restaurants, and then turned around and walked out together.
0: Mm. So, at the time, it looked like Lisa was there of her own free will. Correct. Okay.
1: The next morning, all of them were gone, long before housekeeping showed up to clean up the candy wrappers and empty soda cans that the Neely party had left littered about the room. Investigators later figured out that the Neelys drove Lisa Ann to Scottsboro, Alabama, and spent two nights at a motel there. Whether against her will or not, Lisa Ann spent those nights in the same room as the Neelys before being driven by Judy to a spot on the edge of a granite cliff in the remote Little River Canyon National Preserve, as it is known these days, near the Cherokee-DeKalb County line here in northeast Alabama. And that brings us to Tuesday, September the 28th, 1982, the last day of Lisa Ann Millikan's life. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by AW Outdoor Services, located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up the deck, clean the gutters, and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home, lake house, or creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you than the professional crew at AW Outdoor Services? Call 256 706 7964 and let Alan and his crew do all the hard work for you so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County in clean, carefree comfort. Call Alan today for a free estimate or to get on the AW Spring schedule before it's full. That's ANW Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964.
0: It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in
2: Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Weiss Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a day's long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more.
1: The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds, and they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be.
0: So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post Herald is a great way to do that. The Post Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription. Drive. That's cheap. So call 256 927 4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post Herald. That's 256 927 4476. Thank you for being a sponsor.
1: All right. So to get back to the story, thanks to our sponsors. The first time Judith Ann Neely placed a phone call to the Rome Police Department to tell them where to find the body of Lisa Ann Milliken. No one was sure whether the caller was a prank or not. That was the first thought that they had. That was on Tuesday, September the 28th, 1982 at 1256 local time. Mm -hmm. Neely gave the exact location of Lisa Ann's body, it turned out, which was at the bottom of an 80-foot rock wall in the Little River Canyon area near Fort Payne, Alabama, which is just across the county line from us here uh, in neighboring DeKalb County. Rome police officials called the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office in Fort Payne, told them about the call, and so a group of officers went out to investigate, but they did not see Lisa Ann's body. DA's office uh, investigator, Danny Smith, we mentioned him earlier, and Bert Latham, who was the district attorney for Cherokee County at the time, and a friend of the True Crime on Easy Street family. Yes. Yes. They just happened to be in the Fort Payne area, headed back to Cherokee County. they have been there on business, and they heard the call over the radio, so they turn onto the Canyon Rim Road, and they go out and help, but they don't see anything either, and I drove that road. I, I texted you guys on Wednesday. I took the day off. It was a beautiful day. I put the top down on the car and drove the Canyon Rim Road. Mm-hmm. That was a frightening experience.
0: Yeah, and you said it's nerve wracking. You sent us some video um, once you got up there, and you you sent some wonderful pictures. Steep we'll grades. On, we'll put those on Instagram.
1: Steep grades, deep drops, narrow curves, no guardrails. I have to talk to somebody about that. <laughs> it was very frightening. I, my neck was stiff for two days because I was leaning forward in the car the entire time, going fifteen miles an hour. Just
3: be
2: careful out there. If you yes, go ventur- adventuring.
1: Very very frightening.
2: I think people run that route a lot now. Isn't, isn't that the one that you can, if it'll do it exactly like a, a half marathon?
1: Okay? Uh, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's like 15 miles. So a, so a half marathon's what, 13.2 miles? 13.1. Yeah. 13.1, yeah. Um, so to get back to the story, so 30 minutes after that first phone call that Judy placed, she called Rome radio station WRGA and again reported the exact location of Lisa Ann's body. In the call to the radio station, Judy claimed the police department was covering up the murder. The reason for that was because Judy said during the call that a female juvenile officer was guilty of the crime. Oh. We learn later that Judy has had it in for the foster care system for a couple of years since her initial stint for the purse robbery at gunpoint at Riverbend Mall. Two weeks earlier, she and Alvin had conducted a pair of late night attacks on two Youth Development Council employees, one by firing a gun into his window of his house late at night, and the next night by tossing a homemade bomb into a woman's garage. Mm -hmm. Judy would later claim that the motivation for her planning and perpetrating those attacks was because she had been sexually abused by both of them while she was incarcerated at the YDC.
0: Now, both of them have. Denied.
1: And those charges were later investigated and it all turned out to be fraud. Okay. That was not true. And as it turned out, just like in the case of Lisa Ann's appearance two weeks later, Judy could not resist the temptation to call the police department and take credit for
3: those attacks. And all of those calls had been recorded. So now Judy has called the radio station
1: and now the media is involved. Mm Mm-hmm in the disappearance of Lisa Ann Milliken, It's not like the, the Hearst thing. It's not that much of a media storm because there's not that much media in Rome, Georgia.
0: No, right. no, there's not. But
1: that's the only reason why.
0: And we don't have anyone involved in this who's like royalty. because Not of to mention status that. And not privilege. to mention that. Yeah.
1: So the next day, September the 29th, 1982, Neely called the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office in Fort Payne and again gave the location of Lisa Ann's body. The call was received at 5.30 p.m. local time in Fort Payne. 45 minutes later, Neely called back again and gave directions to where the body was located. And I think, I think Judy still thinks at this point that she's going to pin this murder on the two YDC workers that she's got it in for. Those two people whose homes she attacked earlier in the month. Their names are Ken Dooley and Linda Adair, but that doesn't matter. So Judy's making these phone calls because she wants the dominoes to fall. She wants to trap these people. She thinks she's got the trap set perfectly. Unfortunately for Judy, it will primarily be these phone calls that eventually cause all of the dominoes to fall directly onto her head. I think the old phrase, I think it's from from Hamlet. I'm not a Shakespeare fan, but I think from Hamlet, uh, she is hoisted with her own petard is the phrase.
0: I don't know which one no, that's from. Yeah.
1: That's I'm from Hamlet. A, it is a Hamlet. Yeah.
0: I'm not a, i am not a I mean, I only know a couple of Shakespeare.
1: That's the only <laughs> Shakespeare reference I could possibly make. <laughs> so once again, following directions left by the female voice on the phone, a group of law enforcement officials from DeKalb County headed up the mountain from Fort Payne and then back down into the Canyon. And this time they finally sang. She was indeed at the bottom of an 80-foot drop-off, her body face down, drooped over a fallen tree. She had been shot once in the back and had a half dozen nasty-looking burns in various places on her body. Burns that turned out to be Judy's six attempts to kill Lisa Ann by injecting her with drain cleaner. Ugh. According to her author, Thomas Cook, Alvin Neely had once been told in prison that you could inject someone with drain cleaner as a disguise against murder. The death would appear natural. He had been told.
3: Oh Lord!
1: God. Apparently, Alvin was locked up with someone even dumber than he was.
0: Yeah, that sounds. I like mean, it. and then and then for Judy to go along with it, you got to wonder
1: what that guy did to get himself behind bars. <sighs> yeah,
0: and Judy, that, Judy's not as smart as we think she is. Then, if she's truly thinking that she's going to mask all of that and then frame these other two people,
1: speculation. But that's what it sounds
3: like. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Like we said, for Judy, the, uh, the injections were not having the desired effect. She tried this six times in total over the course of half an hour. Poor Lisa Ann never lost consciousness, Judy admitted later. Oh, my gosh. She just laid there on the ground, handcuffed to a tree, and cried and shivered in fright as her skin burned from the chemicals in her body.
2: Oh, my Lord. What an absolute piece of garbage. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, finally, frustrated by Lisa Ann's refusal to die quickly and quietly, Judy walked her to the edge of the canyon and as 13-year-old Lisa Ann begged for her life, ordered her to turn around and then shot her once in the back.
0: Couldn't even look at her. Well, she shot her. Yeah.
1: (sighs) When she did not fall over the edge after being shot, Judy got down on her hands and knees and pushed Lisa Ann's body over the side of the canyon. In the process, Judy got blood on her blue jeans. So she took them off and changed into another pair that she had in the car. Remember, they lived out of the trunk of the car.
0: Yeah. Convenient.
1: And then she threw the soiled pair of jeans over the edge. They hung in a tree over Lisa Ann's body. Judy then wrapped the syringes in a towel and threw them over the side as well. Were those ever recovered? It was after testing the residue in those syringes. Mm. Just a couple of days later that law enforcement realized that Lisa Ann had been injected with drain clean. Okay.
3: okay.
0: Now, are you going to tell us where Alan was at this time?
1: 40 miles away.
0: Through this whole process.
1: Yes. Alvin wasn't with her. Okay. It was Judy and Lisa Ann alone on the edge of Little River Canyon. Okay. Alvin had the kids 40 miles away. Mm. All right. Headed to a rendezvous later in the afternoon. That was the plan that they had made over the CB radio earlier.
0: Okay. I mean, he knew what was happening, but he was not there.
1: Correct. Okay. So while the investigators were processing the crime scene around Lisa Ann in Alabama, back in Rome, Georgia, later that day, Alvin and Judy were already on the prowl for their next victims. And it did not take them long to find them. Before the Neelys were tracked down and apprehended, they killed another woman and shot her male companion in the back and left him for dead in the middle of the northwest Georgia nowhere.
0: And that is the. I mean, that's nowhere. Yeah, that's the big middle time. of that's nowhere. That's as nowhere yeah.
1: as you can get. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, for the sake of justice, that bullet to the back had not killed a man named John Hancock. Left for dead several hundred feet down a dirt road in a ditch in the woods, Hancock had survived and had made his way back to the highway in the middle of the night to get help and a ride to a local hospital. Janice K. Chapman, age twenty-two did not survive her encounter with the Neelys. She and Hancock were dating at the time and had been abducted together as they walked down the sidewalk within two blocks of their home. They were bored, climbed in the car with Judith
3: and Neely to ride around. Same modus operandi again. Alone
1: now with her captors after her boyfriend had been shot and left for dead and after a night of being raped by Alvin and Judy, Janice Chapman
3: was taken out into the woods in Tatouka County and shot by Judy. It would be two weeks before her body was discovered.
1: You guys remember the two homes that I talked about that were attacked in early September? hmm The YDC workers. Yes. Okay, so without getting into too much detail here, it was the lead of the female voice calling and taking credit for those home attacks. Mm-hmm that led Rome police investigators to begin looking at lists of girls who had stayed in these juvenile centers as possible suspects. When police listened to the voice that called to give directions to Lisa Ann's body, everyone started to think that these two incidents might be connected because the voices sounded similar. And I'm really excited to tell this part of the story because a lot of times on this podcast, it seems like we criticize efforts by the police, botched crime scenes, stupid mistakes, lost evidence, but that is not the case in this investigation. The Neelys' identities were eventually confirmed based on some very solid detective work by the Rome Police Department and the investigators in Cherokee and DeKalb counties.
0: And they're working, yeah, and they're working together.
1: And they're working together.
0: They're not, you know, claiming turf and doing all these things that you hear about. They're working together. That's great.
1: And another common denominator in these calls, especially the calls that were made by the woman's voice about Lisa Ann. They use this term. She used this term called on run. Uh, Instead of, are you looking for the girl who ran away on from the run. Harps home? Are you mm-hmm. looking for the girl who is on run? And somebody said, hey, wait a minute. That's a term that girls who are in the system use. That's, that's, that's an, an inside
3: term. Yeah. So that has got to be somebody who's been in the juvenile system. So when other leads hadn't panned
1: out, the Rome Police Department began to consider the possibility that it was the same female making these calls and she'd been in the system. Combine that with a testimony from John Hancock, he seemed to recall that the woman who shot him in the back was driving a car with out-of-state license plates. So investigators focused on females who had gone through the system despite being from some other state. Judith Ann Neely had entered the system two years earlier after taking that woman's purse at gunpoint in the Riverbend Mall parking lot, and she was from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Remember, too, that Judy had given birth to twins at age 16 just two days after that robbery, and John Hancock also said that there were two kids in the car with the woman who shot him and left him for dead before kidnapping his girlfriend.
3: So
0: it's looking good that it's this woman. I
1: think we've got this person. And so it was really these few clues, the use of the phrase on-run, John Hancock remembering the kids and the license plate, and the familiar female voice calling about multiple crimes that seemed like they were unrelated otherwise. Mm-hmm. So the word went out on October the 12th, 1982. The Neelys were wanted by the law in Rome, Georgia. Now, unknown just yet to the Rome, Georgia law enforcement. Judith Ann Neely had been arrested alone at a CD motel in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, three days earlier, on October the 9th, for writing bad checks. It was an outstanding warrant. In one final hour display of his perhaps diminished mental capacity,
3: Alvin Neely had gone to visit his wife in jail three days later. The very same day that Rome
1: police determined for sure who they were looking for, he was arrested as he climbed out of the car in the parking lot because they suspected that he too was involved in the check writing scheme. And it would be two more days before it would be October the 14th, two days later Mm -hmm. before investigators in Northwest Georgia and Northeast Alabama learned that the Neelys had been arrested and were in custody, Mm -hmm. but their celebration did not last long because it didn't take them long to figure out that Janice K Chapman was not
3: with them. And so that pretty much meant that her fate was sealed. Yeah. While
1: in custody, Alvin told his interrogators that Judy had shot and killed Janice, and then, through, uh, then he drew a map of the location where her body was. At the request of the officer questioning him, when he finished drawing the map, he signed his name to it. Questioned separately, Judy as well confessed to everything. The kidnappings, the rapes, the torture, the murders... But now by the time her court date rolled around in March of 93, she had completely changed that tune. Uh Uh-oh. But uh, Katie's going to tell us about that. So the trial of Judith Ann Ely began on March the 7th, 1983. Tootsie, starring Dustin Hoffman, was the number one film at the box office and had been since January.
0: Wow, that's a long time.
1: Long time. Judge Randall Cole's courtroom at the DeKalb County Courthouse was a drab affair, according to Thomas Cook. It had pastel paint on the walls and low pile gray carpet on the floor. With that bland image in your mind, Katie will now take us through what happened inside that courtroom over the next 16 days in the first capital murder trial held in Fort Payne, Alabama, in over 50 years.
2: And in an attempt to avoid his own death penalty case, Alvin will soon plead guilty to that murder in Georgia, an aggravated assault, and um, he'll be tried separately, and he's never on trial for the crime that we're talking about right here. He is he's going to serve a life sentence in Georgia. But Judith Ann is in the Fort Payne courthouse here. Her attorney goes by the name of Bob French and he's got his work cut out for him. Uh he didn't want to take this case. But he's basically told by Judge Cole that no you're you're appointed to this case. You're going to take this case. You've done other murder ca- murder cases and I want someone who can you know, we, we You're know, experienced. I mm-hmm, want someone with some experience on this. So, he, you know, he does what every defense attorney has to do. He deter, he's determined to do his best. Judy is under 21 at this time, so he begins seeking youthful offender status for her. But Judge Cole denies this motion. So then he asks for psychological tests to be administered to determine her fitness for trial. These tests are done in January of 1983, and she's found... Scott mentioned this earlier, she's, she's fit for trial, she has superior intelligence, and she has no tendency towards delusions or suicide. Okay, so stand trial, you will. Yep. Yeah. So in the meantime, French sets about making Judy more presentable. We've spoke about her appearance already. She came into custody unkempt and pregnant.
1: Oh, yeah, I forgot she was pregnant again. Oh, wow.
2: She is pregnant with her third child. Remember, she's had twins previously. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, French knew he needed to get her cleaned up before she went in front of the jury. Her baby, a little boy, is born while she is waiting for this court date. They had her dental work done, and they bought her clothing at Black's Department Store, which was the nicest ladies' clothing store in the county. Prosecutor Richard Igo noticed that French was preparing Judy for her court appearance, but he did not know what the actual defense would be until the first day of trial. It was evident from the sort of questions French asked to prospective jurors that he was going to try and portray Judy as a victim, the victim of Alvin Neely, under whose irresistible control she had been during the crime. French's questions uh, centered on men's sensitivity to women's emotional pain and their role as heads of households. Hmm. Jury selection went rapidly, and within two days, the seven women and five men chosen were ready to hear the evidence. Any doubt as to French's approach was erased during his opening statement when he says, I will tell you that every move, every act, every thought carrying out the perpetration of this heinous event was planned, calculated, and instituted by Alvin Neely. Okay, so they've, they've just came
0: out swinging saying, mm-hmm. hey, this is it's his
2: fault. Yep. Okay. He told the jury Judy's story beginning with her troubled childhood uh, that she'd fallen for Alvin at the age of 15, left home to be with him, and within a year, he was beating her nonstop. She catered to his every whim, bathing him, feeding him, and eventually becoming and I quote, brainwashed if anyone was ever brainwashed. She was, and I quote again, Alvin Neely's slave. Hmm. Now the prosecution is not going along with this. Among the first witnesses called by the prosecution were two young women and a teenage girl who had been apparently Judy's prospective victims. By the name Debbie Smith, who um, the Investigator had been playing the tape of Judy's voice to when John Hancock recognized it as belonging to the woman who shot him. So they're in,
1: they're in the Rome Police yeah, Department. Rome
2: Police Department playing this tape of these calls that she had made, trying to get someone to recognize the voice. And John Hancock just happens to be there, unrelated. He was not there to hear the tapes, and he's like, "Oh no, I recognize that voice. Yep. That's the woman who who took me, you know, shot my girlfriend, or shot me and my girlfriend, killed my girlfriend."
0: How about that? It's yep. just
2: right place Happen at the stands. right time exactly. sure to be was. able to identify. Yep. Susan Klants identified Judy as the woman who had approached her and asked her if she was alone at Aladdin's Al- Castle in Rome, the Riverbend Mall, on September twenty fifth, the day that Lisa Ann disappeared. Diane Bobo identified Judy as the woman who had tried to get her to go for a ride on the afternoon of October third. None of these witnesses saw Alvin in the vicinity when she was a. When they were approached, and none thought Judy appeared beaten or abused,
0: so they're looking at her appearance and they're saying no she's she's not bathed, and she's you know looking like she's mm-hmm. pretty haggard, but she doesn't have any bruisings or mm-hmm. black eyes or you know marks or anything like and that there's no big
1: man in the back seat leaning over with a knife at her throat, making her do making this making
0: her do this however, the defense is they're, they're just they're, rolling with it saying, well, she was brainwashed. She yes. was going to do whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. He didn't need to be there.
0: He didn't have to be there because he had her brainwashed. Yes. Okay.
2: The next witness is John Hancock. He tells the story of his abduction just as he told it before. And go tried to emphasize the fact that it was Judy who had done the abducting and who had eventually shot him. French, though, got Hancock to admit that although, you know, Judith Ann had seemed in control. It was actually Alvin who had given her directions throughout the abduction. Alvin initiated the contact on the CB radio. Alvin had decided where they would drive and where they would meet. And when Judy Judy seemed to dawdle before shooting Hancock, Alvin had yelled for her to hurry. French asked, he was in charge of that evening's transactions. And Hancock quietly answered, yes, sir. He, he, He did appear to be in control. And... That scored French a few points in her favor with the jury. But with a few questions during redirect, Igo quickly reestablished her role as instigator and director of the situation when he said, Did she seem like she was upset or nervous? Hancock said no, sir. Igo asked, Who was ordering you around? Hancock said she was. And finally, who shot you, John? Well Hancock answered, She did. The first defense witness called was Joanne Browning. Now, this is Alvin Neely's first wife. She had been married to Alvin for three years in the mid-70s and was the mother of three of his children. Browning testified that he had beaten her throughout her marriage, even, though she, even when she was pregnant, and that he had drugged and tried to rape her teenage sister. She said that she had tried to leave several times, but that Alvin had threatened their children. She only escaped him because he had suddenly became interested and Judith Ann. Igo damaged her credibility, though, I mean, pretty quickly, when he established that she was definitely a bigamist. She had married another man long before she and Alvin were divorced. She was probably a liar because since she had claimed to be beaten around 800 times, she had never suffered a broken bone, and she had been pregnant for 27 months out of that three-year marriage, and All the children were fine. There was never a problem with any of her pregnancies. They were all normal. And so she actually ends up leaving the witness stand angry and in tears because they've just kind of torn through her statement.
0: Oh, so she was not being truthful about
3: this.
2: Doesn't appear so because they're like, "Well, how did he beat you and you're pregnant? And did you ever have any medical complications? No. Did he ever break a bone? No. Hmm. The following afternoon, French called Judith Ann to the stand. So she's taken the stand in her own defense. Immediately, her appearance and demeanor clashed with the portrayal of her as a victim. She was cleaned up nicely. She was no longer pregnant. And she's five foot 10 inches tall. So she's a presence in the courtroom. She's not a, a, a small woman.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, she's, she's not a large woman, but she's, she's tall.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: At the defense table, she's been seen to banter and even laugh. And then she had this this one mannerism that was pretty alarming. So alarming that French felt the need to explain it to the jury. He said, he was asking her on the stand. So when you're afraid or nervous, how do you handle that fear or nervousness? And Judith Ann answered, I smile a lot. And she was smiling as she says this. And she continued to smile at French as he led her throughout questions about her childhood, and her early relationship with Alvin that they had met when she was 15 and she, uh, you know, he pursued her and she left her unstable home willingly. She's just, she's smiling.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Said that, then it quickly turned into her becoming Alvin's servant. Talked about the bathing him and drying him, combing his hair. When he got, he used to have jobs at convenience stores, but she would go in to work with him and she would do the stocking of the shelves and the sweeping and the mopping. She cooked for him. She tied his shoes. When she did any of these tasks wrong, he would beat her. He taught her robbery and forgery, which are two of the crimes that she's done time for. He was insanely jealous, even though she claimed she had always been faithful, faithful to him. The stories about the abuse she'd supposedly received at the YDC were of Alvin's making, not hers. That they had never happened.
1: Yeah, that's her on the stand saying none of that ever happened.
2: Right, that Alvin said that, you know, that he, he made all that up. She went into excruciating detail about various beatings and rapes, and her role as victim was gradually becoming more believable as she's, you know, she's painting this picture.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: On the last day of her four days of testimony, so she's on the stand for four days, French began asking questions about Lisa Ann's abduction and murder. Judy said that Alvin wanted a virgin, so she went and got him one. she delivered Lisa to him for his use and his instruction, and at his instruction, took part in the beatings. She witnessed his many sexual assaults on Lisa, as did her children. Because remember, they're there the whole time that, that they have Lisa in these motel rooms. The these two
1: motels, the one in Franklin, Georgia, and the other one in Scottsboro, Alabama. Mm
2: hmm. Alvin had chosen the spot for Lee Sands' death and had been at Judy's side issuing orders the whole time. Which we know for a fact is not true. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. He's 40 miles mm-hmm. away, you said? Yep. After he was sure she was dead, Judy recalls that he then masturbated. Yuck. And he had ordered her to make the calls to Rome and Fort Payne Police Departments. And she had done everything he said because she was afraid of him. She had admitted to the abduction and murder of Janice Chapman, uh, saying that she did this out of fear of Alvin as well. And then she had picked up another girl in Murfreesboro for Alvin's use. But then she was arrested, so they never got around to that.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, Alvin and the girl were, they were hiding in the bathroom when, when Judy was arrested at a motel room. I don't know why the sheriff's deputy or whoever didn't, searched the entire room, but apparently he did not. Because because, they were just looking for her for
2: forgery, so it wasn't like. So he
1: grabbed her and hauled her to jail, and then Alvin and her name was Casey. They escaped or they left, and he dropped her off somewhere. And then three days later, he went to visit her in jail, and that's when they got him.
2: Yeah, convenient that the guy who's manipulating her and he's the psychopath. He didn't do anything to the girl when he was left alone with her. That's That's, what I was going
0: to ask. That's a good point. He let this girl go. He let her
1: go. Dropped her off at a grocery store parking lot. They waved goodbye,
0: and then the girls who they had or coerced into being with them mm-hmm. when Judy was there both ended up dead.
1: Correct. Yes. And just one thing, when uh, uh, Katie talked about Judith and Ely's last day of testimony, mm-hmm. do you remember your fourth birthday party? No. Kelly Turner, because it was on March the 17th, 1983. Oh, wow. Okay. Wasn't Yay. that the day you turned four?
0: That I turned four that day. Yeah.
3: I thought so. Anyway.
2: (laughs) I don't remember what I did, though. Prosecutor Igo didn't believe any of this testimony. He had seen her when she was first brought to Fort Payne, and then she had... And and at that moment, she was hard and cold. He quickly tried to counter French's established defense. Uh, Judy claimed to have been beaten, beaten countless times, but had only suffered ever two broken fingers and a slightly chipped tooth. Like, those were her ailments. And she had been acting on her own, she admitted, during the shooting of Janice Chapman. uh, The first shot had been on Alvin's orders, but the other two were because Chapman was screaming and Judy was afraid someone would hear. Uh, Igo asked, he didn't tell you to shoot her two more times in the chest just to shut her up, did he? Judy answered, no, sir. Igo then produced a series of photographs featuring Alvin and Judy, posing merrily with various guns and family members. In each, Judy was smiling. Not meekly, but pretty big, and Alvin had arranged all the pictures. Judy said, and had ordered her to smile like that.
0: Hmm. So these
2: like creepy photos. So with Alvin,
0: it's it's a question of is Alvin this psycho mastermind, correct, or is he this dumb yeah. dude that Scott's told us about? Yeah, is he
1: is he Butch Cassidy or is he the Sundance Kid? <laughs> Yeah. Or,
2: Is there a difference? I'd never
0: watch. Maybe not.
1: <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example.
2: Finally, Igo takes Judy through the events that took place at the edge of Little River Canyon that previous September. For every why question, there was the answer because Al told me to. She said that the only things she did on her own were eat and go to the bathroom. That absolutely everything else about her life had been dictated by her husband. Hmm. French's redirect was aimed at convincing the jury of that claim. He showed a few more pictures intended to prove that Judy had been beaten, and he showed the jury a drawing she had done at the Macon Youth Detention Center. The sketch was of a hand reaching out through bars, and Judy said it represented her life with Alvin. Hmm. Igo called uh, Dr. Alexander Salius of the Alabama Department of Mental Health as a rebuttal witness, and he testified that Judy had known the difference between right and wrong at the time of her crime, that she had made a conscious decision to kill Lisa. Fritz tried to get the doctor to say uh, that according to an established clinical definition that Judy had been brainwashed. So as we've mentioned, brainwashing is not a legal defense.
1: Yeah, What's it called? Uh, Coercive persuasion. Yes.
2: But the doctor would say no such thing. He was like, she maintained her free will. He said that he could not say she was brainwashed. His testimony severely damaged the defense. Because even when French asked him about the bruises Judy had in one of the pictures, if they were consistent with a beating with a baseball bat, the doctor was like, I mean, not necessarily. A pinch would give you the same result. He said, so in your opinion, this could be caused by twisting skin or pinching. And the doctor said, certainly. So what? There, that, that's a big difference. Big difference. Baseball, baseball bat and. Mm. And th- so he, the doctor's the last witness. Okay, so that was fresh on the minds mm-hmm. of the jury. French's closing argument took two hours. Wow. It was broad and at times bizarre. He made references to the Bible and the Chinese principle of yin and yang. <sighs> If I'm a jury member, I'm just going to be honest, I'm angry at this yeah, point. I'm over it. 2 he, hours he uh pleads with the jury to live their to live their Christian witness and allow their feminine side and their love side to shine through. He spoke of snakes and insects and birds and um the female multi orgasmic response. That made it into the closing argument? Yes, and I don't know to exactly what context,
0: but I mean, I need to know what context that was in. I'm going to have to do some research on that and see if I can find that out.
2: He read some of Alvin's letters to Judith Ann. Uh, He would meander back to his point. Were they violent in nature?
0: No, they were very... Remember what I told you? You better do it or I'm going to kill you. There was some jealousy
1: from time to time, but mostly it was loving and, and sexual in nature.
0: Yes, oh. yes.
1: Very sexual in nature because they were separated at the time. They were both incarcerated in different places. So they're longing for their return together and here's what I'm going to do when I see you again. And but it wasn't
0: like I'm going to you better give it up when I see yeah. you again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to beat the hell out of you. Not at With all. With
2: that baseball
1: bat. Without, yeah. Very loving. Okay. okay.
2: French said don't you hold Judy Neely to a standard of some healthy, robust female whose husband may slap her around now and then. What?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: what? You, yeah,
2: you that hold, jumped
3: out
1: at me too.
2: Yeah, you hold her to the standard of a woman that's beaten every day of her life. Not enough to kill her, just enough to hurt. Just enough to bust her head. Just enough to leave teeth marks on her skin.
3: The mm-hmm.
1: It was a this, different time.
0: Look, let me just tell you something. This, if I'm on this jury, I'm gone. Yeah, I'm gone. Yeah, He's lost me. No,
2: this this closing statement was, I mean, bizarre. That's the best way to describe it, I Didn't
1: think. he mention uh, something about Patricia Hearst? Yes. At one point, he, don't let the same thing that happened to Patricia Hearst happen to Judith Ann Neely. I hope I, hope I didn't step on your no, point. No, but, no, no. But yeah, because that had happened in 75, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is 82. So still fresh mm-hmm. on the minds, this whole coercive persuasion argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, don't... They got away with it with Patty Hearst. Don't let them get away with it here.
2: The prosecution's closing argument was much shorter. He said that she had not suffered the abuse she claimed. There were no scars from the attacks. If there had been, uh, the defense would have certainly pointed them out. Mm -hmm. That's true. He reminded the jury that the doctor had stated unequivocally that she had not been brainwashed. You know, we've got, Four other witnesses had all been asked if they'd noticed any marks or bruises on her and none had. Okay. That she had planned, carried out, and enjoyed her crimes. Igo states, Alvin didn't have the nerve, but she did. That was Judy Neely. That's it. Short and sweet. The end of his argument centered on Lisa and her final moments on the edge of the canyon. Mm. What had happened to her there, he said, was, and I quote, evil and i don't think i've ever used that term before in a criminal case but if it ever applied in a situation it applies here
0: mm-hmm. and that uh sort of gives a nod to a there's a is, can you really call it a book but it's a it's a very short book on judith and neely and it's what is it called one evil bitch or oh yeah it's like a little pamphlet almost
3: mm-hmm. yeah so uh, that sort of yes.
0: nods to
2: mm-hmm.
0: his closing
1: Oh yeah, probably it. so. Yeah.
2: Judith Ann was ultimately convicted of the torture murder of Lisa Ann Milliken. Despite a jury's recommendation to sentence her to life in prison, Judge Randall Cole sentenced the 18-year-old mother of three to death in Alabama's electric chair. Judge Cole had heard all he was going to hear. Oh. He heard enough. He was like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the jury
0: suggested mm-hmm. yes, life that was their in prison without the possibility of parole, correct?
1: Or just life at this point? Point. I think life means no parole At this in Alabama, mm-hmm. and it was a ten to two vote, right? Yes. Katie, yeah.
2: And like I said, this is just a recommendation. Were the other two thinking that she was brainwashed? No, no, no. Not ten sure. to two recommendation on um, life on life. So were the two wanting death? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That would be yeah. Yes, because you have to have a unanimous vote on. Okay, I on was guilt. getting
0: confused. Like is that- yes, this was just okay. for the sentencing recommendation. Right.
2: Okay, gotcha. At 18 years old, she became the youngest woman sentenced to death in the United States. She was placed on Alabama's death row at Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women. As we have stated, that is the only prison for women in the state of Alabama. Yep. She appealed for a new trial, but it was denied in March of 1987. In 1989, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed her death sentence. But on January 15, 1999, Judith was days from her execution date. When Governor Fobb James commuted her sentence to life in prison with a possibility of parole, that possibility would come up in another 15 years, thus a minimum sentence of 31 years in prison.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that. Mm -hmm.
2: And this decision was met with a ton of controversy. He cited that the jury's recommendation for her sentence, he, he cited the jury's recommendation for her sentencing as part of his reasoning And he also has gone on record of saying he didn't understand the... He was was advised that she would not be eligible for parole. That's right. And we've talked about this a few
0: times. I think we talked about it at the live show, too, that we did on this case. Mm -hmm. We don't really know if he was thinking that the legal team meant she will never get out of prison because she doesn't come up for parole or he didn't understand parole or... That they were thinking, even if she comes up for parole, no one's going to let
2: her
1: out. Right?
2: You know, we kind of right. toyed with either one of those. I think he thought that there were no, there would be no parole hearings.
1: Is that? I what think he, that's correct. Is I that think, what
2: he said to you, Scott?
0: I, you know,
1: I think what he meant, based on what he said to me from what I remember about that conversation, because we spoke about it on the phone once.
2: Yes, yeah, Scott had an actual phone conversation with Governor James at. Um, he had to what, get off his tractor to come speak to you. Yeah.
1: He had already, uh, left office. And so I called him at his home a few months later or whenever this happened, uh, a couple of years later. And he explained that he thought that by commuting her sentence from death to life, that she would never be eligible for parole. Okay. But in the state of Alabama, that is not the case. Right. If you get a life sentence in 15 years, you get a parole hearing.
2: Okay. And there have been some legislative things happen since then because in two thousand three, Alabama passed a law that made her ineligible, but it that law was deemed that it unconstitutional. T- it, you couldn't go back, and mm-hmm. it it wasn't retroactive. And
1: and you can't just write a law that punishes one person. Yes, too, it was. Right? Yes,
2: that's that was the main thing. Yeah. It, was, it was so directed at this case.
1: Obviously, it was to keep Judith Ann Neely in prison Mm -hmm. and you can't Mm -hmm. do that.
2: Um, On February 28th, 2008, uh, this case was profiled on Investigation Discovery, their program called Most Evil, and on a scale developed by forensic psychiatrist Michael Stone, she was ranked as a Category 22 killer, which is the most evil level deemed for serial torture murderers. I believe it. Yep. Yeah. The last parole hearing uh, was in 2018 and the parole board has denied parole. Her next eligibility is this year, this year, 2023.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I wish I'd done it sooner. I wish I'd thought of it sooner, but it was, it was yesterday on Saturday that it occurred to me, hey, reach out to the district attorney. And I, so I texted Mike O'Dell, whose number I still have, even though he uh, left in January. He said he didn't know. He said, call the new DA. And I have her number as well. So Summer Summerford is our new DA. Mm-hmm. And I texted her and she said she hasn't received word about a parole hearing yet involving Judith and Neely. But when that happens, she will let us know.
0: And we can uh, give an update here. Yes, we can. But we don't believe that she will be paroled.
1: Mike O'Dell always said, I always knew when she was coming up for parole and I would always be at those hearings to argue against her ever receiving parole. But he said one other thing. He said, if she ever did for some reason get out of prison in Alabama, there would be a contingent from the state of Georgia waiting in the parking lot to take her across state lines and prosecute her for what she did there for the because, death of Janice K. Chapman. Yeah, she's admitted
0: she's, to that murder. Yeah. Yeah, because she's not, uh, there's not really justice for that. I mean, there is because you can't put her in two different jails at one right. time, but they, Georgia's
1: ready. At least, I mean, that was always Mike's. Mike always stayed in touch with those folks. And just in case you you had to pull the the, the emergency rip cord. Hey, come get her. She's she's walking out at noon today.
0: Mm-hmm, right. You know? And they'll be there to, yeah. to get her. Now, Alvin, tell us, you know, we, we talked about it 99 episodes ago. Right. Mm-hmm. What
2: happened to Wow. Al- I know. What happened to Alvin? What happened to Alvin? Oh, yeah. He was serving a life sentence in Georgia for the murder of Janice Chapman. And he's since passed away.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it was 2012. Mm-hmm. He died in prison from health complications.
2: So he never... Saw the light of day again.
0: And he He
1: was
2: never on trial for for this crime because he was serving that life sentence in Georgia, kind of how Mm -hmm. she's in Alabama and she has not done any time for that crime in Georgia. Right, And in Alabama, inmates do not attend parole hearings. So she is stuck in Mm Tutwiler. She will not attend this parole hearing this year when it comes up. So at least, you know, this victim's families don't have to... See her or deal with that. But the last parole hearing, the board, you know, deliberated for a minute before they denied it.
1: Uno minutos.
2: She's waived a couple of parole hearings too in the past. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's always a possibility.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, she's certainly, if anybody's ever become uh, institutionalized, she probably, I don't want to say prefers prison, but Mm -hmm. she would just be so out of touch with reality if. Obviously, she got out. She's been well, in a lot that,
0: longer
2: than she was ever out. Yeah,
0: yeah. I know that um, one of the reasons she gave was she didn't want to put the family through it, you know, and then mm. she, there, I know there was, um, when she was, her sentence was commuted by Governor James at the time, she was, it was very similar to a case in Texas where she, she was talking about how she had um, found religion and, mm-hmm. and right. found Christianity that. and she was, you know, experiencing remorse and regret and she was sorry for the things that she had done and this has happened very, uh, almost exactly the same way in Texas and uh, they went ahead with the execution mm-hmm. and uh, the governor there caught a lot of grief for that right. and we talked about Fob James You wouldn't previously. think that would be the case in Texas. No, we talked about um Fob James and his, his religion and mm-hmm. how he felt, you know, convicted that, that this, might have been an issue possibly. but if that, you know
1: what that's part of the job of being the governor of the state if you don't want the responsibility don't run for office
0: it is and but we also, i remember saying that
1: the first time you
0: did and we also talked about how he, he told you his reasoning was he wanted to mirror what the jury had recommended. Yeah, he did say that
1: mm-hmm. he said the jury that heard all of that evidence voted 10 to 2 to give her life in prison and the judge did what he did
2: judge randall cole served on that bench a long time yeah, he saw a lot of things. He did. I think he and he. Said I don't think he penalty. had any uh, remorse. Or, I don't think he did either. Worry mm-hmm. about g- passing that sentence. And I hope
1: he fired off a nasty letter to Fob James after that happened, because I'll, I'll, be, I'll bet he, you Mike I, Odell did.
2: Oh, I <laughs> bet Judge Cole had Fob James's phone number.
1: Yeah, he might probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I could find it, surely the judge yeah. can find it, right? I
0: bet you Judge Cole didn't have to wait for him to finish with his tractor. No, yeah, yeah.
1: I bet they wouldn't got him off the tractor. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So
0: that's. Um, that's the story. Are we are we tying it up in a bow now? We have tied that's, it that's, up in a bow. I think that's we, about it. We yeah. will let you know.
1: Yeah, if something happens. We've got our we've got feelers out with the uh, DA's office, so we'll let you know if something happens. Mm-hmm.
2: It's so crazy. The first time we did this, we were like, "She'll be eligible for parole in a couple of years," and now here we here are. we are here this we year. are
1: sometime or this summer, thing, I'm yeah. guessing. So, mm-hmm. uh, and she is. Uh, let's see. She was born on June the seventh, nineteen sixty four. So she will be fifty nine years old on June the seventh. So she's fifty eight she's, right now. It, it's she's spent you, forty years in prison. We well,
0: have to keep reminding ourselves. She, she was so young when she did this. She's still young. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. To me, especially sitting <laughs> well, here at fifty-two, you
2: know, Lisa Ann would still be young too.
1: Yeah, she would be a year older Le- than me, so she'd Lisa be fifty-three Ann right now. Would
2: be fifty-three,
0: absolutely. And how old would Janice Chapman be? She was 22. She was
1: twenty-two. So, um, let's see. Boy, you're going to make me do the math. Yeah, aren't do you. the she'd math. Be the early uh, early Forty 60s years, she'd be 50. sixty-two. Yeah. yeah, she would be. Uh,
0: she would be alive and well today too. So yeah. Um. Well, all right. More to come on that. Uh, and we've done it. We've completed Yay. 100 episodes.
3: Insane. Tune in next week for
1: episode 101. Oh my goodness! Right? Yeah, Can we're you not believe it? Stop
3: now? No, heck nope. no. There's nope, this is too not late. it.
1: Hey, this thing is barreling down the hill. That when the brakes have shot, it's we can't yeah, we're stop
0: done. it. We're done.
1: Yeah. So, guys, don't forget. We never remember to tell everybody to go to our Facebook page because yeah. when we when there are updates going on. Uh, on current cases that we yes. followed in the past the Murdoch's whatever else the Clink the, the Scales case just had an update all of that stuff is on our Facebook page yes. we pop those things up we let you know when the new episodes drop so you can keep in touch with us when you're not listening to the show
0: they have actually identified Kyle Clinkscales' body from the, those bones they um, found
1: in that car Yep,
0: absolutely.
1: All right, guys, don't quit on us now. We're not going to quit on you. Come back next week. We'll do it all again.
0: We have some amazing episodes coming your way this season.
1: Very soon. It's going
0: to get very convoluted. In a good way. In a good way, Yeah. yeah.
3: Good night, everybody.